Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm well. How are things with you in New York? Uh, it's good. It's the summer. It's an exciting time here, and it's an exciting city here. Like I know Singapore is always very exciting. So yeah, all is good. I, we are talking to Jamie Mezzo, currently a senior advisor to a global investment company called Cremia, and a senior fellow of the Atlantic Council. Where we met many years was in Indonesia, where you were mm-hmm. still serving as the executive vice president of the Asia Society. And that Asia 21 leadership event was really great. But before going into that, I want to sort of talk to you because you have a lot of extensive experience in foreign relations. So maybe tell me a little bit, how did you get started with your career and got involved into international relations? And specifically, I know you hold a PhD in Southeast Asia history from Oxford. Sure. So when I was 18 years old, I was a freshman at Brown University. And I met a classmate of mine named Arn Chorn Pond. And Arn, um, it was and is a survivor of the Cambodia genocide. And I was so inspired by Arn's story that I checked out every book in the library about Cambodia and the genocide and read that. And then that summer, I quit my job in Kansas City, where I'm from, on the first day, held a big garage sale of all the junk in my parents' house and bought a ticket and went to Thailand and and made my way to a refugee camp where I spent the summer teaching English to refugee children who later would be coming to the United States and had a real profound impact on me. And the more I spent time, I got more and more involved with the refugees, the more I came to feel that while it was very important to help refugees, it was even more important to to have countries make smarter decisions So refugee flows aren't created in the first place. And that uh, led me to thinking that I really wanted to have a career in in foreign policy. And so after college, I was at Harvard Law School and spent some time working with the UN in Cambodia, then was at Oxford doing my PhD in Asian history. Then I joined the, the US government on the National Security Council, and then the State Department, and then the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee under then-Senator, now Vice President uh, Joe Biden. And foreign policy has just, has for a very long time, been a critically important part of my life. As you have actually indicated, you have actually served in the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee under the Senator, now Vice President Joe Biden. Yeah. And a couple of other important international roles, particularly also with the United Nations Transitional Authority in Cambodia as well, right? So what have you learned from your experience with international affairs in all these roles that you have actually done? Well, that it's really complicated and it's really difficult, but the most important thing is that countries around the world can agree on a set of values that we are working together to support and that we, in fact, support them. And so I certainly believe that countries can do a lot for good. And, I, and I'm, I'm an American, and I'm, I'm proud of what the United States uh, has done since the Second World War in laying the foundation for the international order uh, that many of us benefit from. Uh, but I'm also acutely aware 
of what can happen when countries don't live up to their best values. And certainly with the United States, I think that was what happened in, in Vietnam. It was what happened uh, in Iraq and maybe to a certain extent in, uh, in Afghanistan. And I see countries like China, uh, where China has a great tradition of very responsible behavior, but uh, of late China has been behaving very much like a bully and trying to throw its weight around and, and trying to put pressure on many smaller countries, uh, including countries in, in Southeast Asia. And I think that when, when the United States acts badly, that's a problem for the international community. And when China acts badly like they're doing now, that's also a very, very big uh, problem for the international community. Mm. And, and everybody else needs to come together and we need to talk about what are the ways that we would like the world to work? Uh, mm -hmm. What are the, sta the standards? What are the institutions that we need? And then to work, uh, and it's very hard work to try to support those norms and help build those institutions. In the last few years, I mean, during when Hillary Clinton was like the Secretary of State, talk about the Asian pivot. So how do you yeah. think about that from that perspective, given that the US is actually much more focused into the Asia yeah. at that point? Well, the U.S. has been involved in Asia for over a century. So we're, we're, it's just a relatively minor rebalancing towards Asia, but it recognizes that Asia is more central uh, to the world than it's been for many, many centuries. Uh, unfortunately, China has been behaving very badly recently. It's sad because before the 2008-2009 financial crisis, uh, China uh, was talking about peaceful rise. And as a matter of fact, the U.S., we had major bases in the Philippines, and we were asked to leave the Philippines because there was a sense, particularly after the Cold War, that now Asia, Asians can, can run Asia. And if, if China had stuck to that peaceful rise, I think they would be in a much better position, uh, and it would, it would have been a much better policy for them. But instead, at the time of the financial crisis, I think many senior people in China said, uh, felt that the, the uh, financial crisis showed that the American system had had lost its way uh, that america was uh, was over and that china was the new up-and-coming great power and since that time there's been unfortunately a, just a tremendous level of of arrogance and bullying by china and america's allies and friends in the asia pacific region were begging the United States to pay more attention, have more military assets, to be more engaged on trade issues. The United States certainly felt that supporting our friends and allies in the region in support of free uh, navigation and high-level international standards was something that it was important to the region, and certainly it was important to us. So you have traveled in Asia for, a, I mean, you've been to many yeah. countries, even yeah, been to yeah. North Korea, right? As yes, well. I have so, been many, most yeah. places. So in, in your view, culturally, how do typically you perceive Asia? I mean, what are your kind of, when you talk to someone about Asia, what are your thoughts? Like, how do you organize sure. the, their sure. thoughts into understanding Asia? Sure. Well, the first and most important thing is there is really no such thing as Asia. I mean, there's a bunch of countries that happen to be geographically in a place that we call Asia. But there's not that much in common between the, the Philippines and, and North Korea. I mean, just, there, are, there, it, there is a thing, Asia, but there are a lot of very different types of countries with very uh, different histories. The second thing 
uh, is that in Europe and certainly in the United States, one of the lessons that we drew from the First World War and the Second World War was that nationalism and extreme pushes to defend absolute national sovereignties, we see that as a source of instability because that's what led to the, the world wars. But in Asia, uh, and that's why in the West, in the whole history of the, of the end of the war and the post-war period, is about pooling sovereignty in order to make an investment in peace. And that's what uh, the UN is about. That's what the EU is about. That's what NATO is about. But in Asia, sovereignty is alive and well. As a matter of fact, some societies feel that they, had, they wish they had had more absolute senses of national sovereignty when the European colonialists had arrived a couple of hundred years or 500 years, however many years before. So uh, and this, there's a very stark contrast to the role of in the, how people in the West, now people in the East, see nationalism, sovereignty, and the role of the state. And so from a Western perspective, Asia today looks kind of like uh, Europe uh, just before World, World War I. And that's, that's certainly very frightening. On a cultural level, Asia is just such an incredibly diverse, diverse place. I mean, there are some countries like India, which are entire universes unto themselves. The level of depth and diversity and, and richness and culture in Asia is really in incredible. And then do two other just very quick points. Asia is integrating economically in this incredible way, and it's dividing politically and from a security perspective in a very dangerous way. So there's like a, it's, I hope that economic Asia and integrative Asia will become a more powerful force than security Asia and arms race Asia. Uh, but I think but we don't know the answer uh, to that question yet. And I think that that's the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is the Asia 21 Society. I mean, you have sure. served as the executive vice president for the Asia Society from April 2005 right. to 2011. And we met in uh, the Young Leaders Initiative in 2010 in Jakarta. So I want, to yes. tell, I, I want to the audience to know about this because it's a very interesting leadership summit. I personally benefited from learning, meeting leaders from uh, other Asian countries. I mean, particularly the professor from North Korea, um, yeah, Ross sure. from the State Department who served under yeah. Hillary Clinton. So yeah. maybe tell me more about the Asia Society and what is it about and maybe about this Asia 21 Young Leaders Initiative. Sure. Yeah, sure. So Asia Society, it's an organization founded in the 1950s by John D. Rockefeller. And the goal was first to educate Americans about Asia. But over time, the mission became uh, to connect uh, countries across the Asia Pacific. So it's a wonderful old organization that has uh, programs in arts, culture, policy, business, and education. When I joined, I had been part of a lot of young leaders uh, initiatives. Uh, and so I led the process with others of creating the Asia 21 initiative, which is a young leaders initiative designed uh, to identify the, the top uh, 40 and under leaders from every country in Asia and from the United States, and to bring them together in multiple forums and multiple formats to learn from one another and to build networks um, so that uh, to create a connectivity across Asia uh, that doesn't exist to the level that certainly I believe that it, uh, that it should, that people in Europe are more connected to other Europeans than people in Asia are connected to other Asians. And there's no reason that that uh, has to be the case, and we were trying to address that. There is this 
Asia Young 21's initiative. Every year we have a conference in one of the Asian mm-hmm. countries. So it's going to be the 10th anniversary this year, right? In Hong Kong? Yes, exactly. Yep. Mm. So what are your reflections with the involvement with the Asia Society? Well, certainly with uh, Asia 21 was probably the, my favorite thing that I did. And it's one of my most, uh, the achievements maybe in of, of my life that I'm most proud of, not just because when in any country in Asia, including Singapore, where I go, I just have people who I, I absolutely love and have so much uh, respect for. Uh, but there's just so many people who have connected with others and other collaborators and friends in many other uh, other countries. So it's weaving a web of connectivity uh, across the Asia Pacific region, and which is so important because of the issues and uh, that I mentioned earlier about the, the potential drivers of conflict. I guess this part of the conversation I wanted to talk to you is about the economics and politics in Asia. And specifically, the first topic I wanted to talk to you about is the recent China slowdown and the equity mm-hmm. bubble burst. Yes. I've read a very interesting email from you about the looking at this whole situation. But I think let's start from the slowing down of the Chinese economy. Would you yeah. see that this is moving towards a more sustainable economy or does it, is it representing a, re, a financial crisis given the equities bubble burst recently in the last two, three weeks or so? So let's, let's take the two questions separately. So mm. there's the issue of the slowdown. Mm. Uh, the slowdown isn't necessarily a bad thing for China because the hot growth like they've had in the past isn't sustainable. And Chinese leaders, more than anybody, know that they need to move from a, an economy based on low-end manufacturing and investment uh, to an economy that's based more on consumption and innovation and services and all these kinds of things. And so they have a plan to move from the first to the second. Certainly, it's, it's a, a, in ways other than what I'll, I'll explain in a moment, I think they have a, a good plan. And so before the, the this crash, if that's what we want to call it. I was speaking about this a lot, and I said uh, at that time, and I still believe it, that China's economic reform, in my view, uh, cannot ultimately work without political reform, because the biggest problem that China faces is the misallocation of resources. And the core resource that's being misallocated is power and access uh, to power. And then when you look at every other problem that China has, misallocation of capital, misallocation of labor, environmental problems, everything stems uh, from that, uh, that original sin of the misallocation of political power. And the party uh, has said that, well, we, the party, we will take the lead in bringing about this economic reform. And that's the base of the implicit deal that Xi Jinping has made is that if you, that I'm going to centralize, he is going to centralize power, and then he's going to use that to drive uh, economic reform. But the problem with that, as I see it, is that the, the core goal of the, of the party is to maintain the primacy of the, uh, of the party above the law. And if you're trying, if right now the party is benefiting from the system, that means that the party would need to basically work against how most of its members perceive their interests. And so that's why when people talk a lot about the anti-corruption campaign, but what is the Communist Party? The Communist Party itself is a patronage network. And so corruption is not a cancer on the Communist Party. Corruption is the essence of the Communist Party. And so to have 
a true anti-corruption campaign would mean putting the party under the law. And that's something that they're not willing to do. So I, I see that as an inherent addiction. And that doesn't mean that everything is going to fall apart. I think that, that China has a lot of opportunities for growth, including through urbanization and agricultural reform and, uh, and other things. But ultimately, uh, to get to the kind of developed economy that I know that the Chinese people want, and I certainly believe they deserve, I don't think they can get there without political reform. Mm. Um, and that brings us to the stock market crash. So the stock market went up, uh, stock markets went up about 150% over a year, and then they went down 30%. And the government panicked and went nuclear in its response. And part of it is that the government had been encouraging uh, the stock that had been pushing the stock markets uh, higher, and they felt that their credibility was on the line. And now they've taken this very act, these active steps, and they've allowed for about a quarter of the market to be frozen. And they've had, had all of these regulatory and capital actions that have continued a uh, to inflate the markets at unrealistic valuations. And so I think what they're trying to do is to not have a, a route, not to not have a crisis. And they're vulnerable because there's been so much margin lending, borrowing money to buy uh, shares, but then to slowly let the air out of the balloon in a more managed way uh, over time. Again, the problem is that a lot of these decisions need to be made because for the political needs of the party. And I think there's a growing conflict between the political needs of the party and the needs of the economy, which is a sense of law and rule of law, and which applies to all and accountability. And as long as the party is above the law, party members will be, I believe, too tempted to use the advantages they have to gain benefits at the expense of the overall reform effort. So before Xi Jinping became president, the year-on-year -year growth is promised by, I think the former Prime Minister Wen Jiabao was something about 8% GDP growth year-on-year. -year. Yeah. So yeah. I think after that, they started to slow down and then the Chinese economy is now reaching, it grown with valuations of Chinese stocks tripled to those of, yeah. I mean, the other significant market is of course the US stock exchange, of course. And with these recent stock crashes, what do you think are the forces that are responsible for these market crashes happening in the China stock market? Well, the, the, the stock markets in China are more speculative than probably any other place in the world. 80% of the investors are retail investors. A lot of the stocks, especially on the Shenzhen exchange, are they're either tech stocks or there are other stocks just pretending to be tech stocks that some boring company that changes its name and says it's a tech stock and then their multiples go uh, go crazy. And so there's just it's a lot of gambling. And the basic issue was that the the stock market the money was in that was in real estate but real estate was slowing and so then people started moving their money into share into shares because that seemed like it was growing so it just it's the whole, there's a lot of elements of the chinese economy which to me seem like a ponzi scheme and ponzi schemes we have made off here in the united states they can last a long time but at the end of the day gravity applies and that's why i think that china ultimately is going to need a real reform program with real accountability because a lot of sins are being uh, are being covered up uh, in this this 
Ponzi, Ponzi scheme, and whether it's real estate that's held that, where the market isn't allowed to function, or shares where the market isn't really allowed to function, or these misallocation of resources where the market is distorted because of, of political power. And so, in my mind, the ultimate uh, story for China is that they need political reform to ultimately ensure. Come close to ensuring the success of economic reforms, mm. but in, this is one of those things where the proof in the pudding is in the eating. Mm. So if if China can build some new model for continued economic growth that's based on a different set of axioms than the ones that that we've kind of tried to figure out since Adam Smith or and before, then that's great, and and time will tell. But just my one. Humble man's view is that they're not going to get there、uh, without、um, political reform. I was looking at the past two weeks, where what they did is they actually required government-connected pensions, sovereign wealth funds like CIC, insurance companies, and、yeah. brokerage houses to kind of do massive purchase of shares. Yep. Then they also done some things like cutting interest rates and banning short selling and selling、yep. of large shareholders, and even. Doing a lot of kind of strengthening measures to basically halt even trading of approximately、yeah. shares in brokerage. Do you yeah, think it's, it's over- less than half. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think they. I, I do, do you think they overreacted? Absolutely. I think they made a big mistake because now they're in a position where they're guaranteeing, and where the government seems to be guaranteeing these insane valuations that aren't connected to reasonable expectations of future earnings. Of the company, so in, in some ways they've nationalized their stock market, and, and I think it was just there was an impulse, there was an anti-market impulse that they had, and so well, if you guarantee、uh, that you can't lose money in the stock market, well, then a lot of people will invest in the stock market because they think there's an implicit government guarantee. But to back that, when especially when valuations are so out of whack, that's really expensive, even for a country like China. When you add in That people took margin loans where they were putting as little, even though this now be it's technically illegal, putting as little as five percent. So you get twenty times your collateral to invest in the stock market. You can see why they would fear some kind of, of downward chain reaction.、Mm. And I thought that one of the interesting thing that came out from that letter you wrote on the China's equity bubble、mm-hmm. was something about what is going to happen to medium term for China. You having、yeah. this prediction that you're going to reach into a Japanese style stagnation. I, what, what led you to that that conclusion?、Uh, it's just all the things that I've、uh, that I've said. They know that they need real economic reform. They know the things that they can do. They have these big advantages because they can do rural land reform. They can promote、uh, urbanization. But to make all of these things work, they need the reform program to work. And for the reform program to work, they need to reallocate access to all resources, economic resources, and political power.、Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that they, under, the, under the current system, they're willing to do that. And because of that, I just don't think that they're going to be able to do the heavy lifting that's required to get over the middle income trap and to become. A Korea. I think that it's 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 what they've done so far is incredible. But that's the easy part. Phase one growth. Soviet Union did it well. North Korea did it well. Phase two growth of becoming a innovation, consumption, services led, accountable economy where you're not just stealing intellectual property, but you're Taking the lead in real innovation—that's hard. I probably one one last thought is that given that they also recently set up that Asia 
infrastructure bank, which is similar yes. to the IMF. What are your thoughts or on the that? Or the ADB. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's good. You know, it's funny with the United States. I think the United States government was totally wrong in its position on AIIB. For sure, it's a challenger to the Asia Development Bank. But six years ago, uh, a deal was negotiated to give China more shares in the IMF. And yeah, the, the, it was negotiated through the G20. And the U.S. Congress blocked the ratification of that. And so uh, China was was kind of locked out uh, of that. And we've been calling, our American leaders have been calling on China to be a more responsible stakeholder in the international system. And so when China announced plans <clears throat> to establish the AIIB, I think the right U.S. response should have been, well, this has potential to be positive, but for it to be positive, we would need, uh, the world should make sure that the standards for AIIB aren't lower than the existing standards for the other multilateral institutions. Any country wants to join, uh, we have no problem with that, but we think that, that as a condition for their joining, they should insist that this be development bank be set up on based on the highest international standards, not on the lowest. So I think it was a, it, it's a good initiative, and then we'll see how it plays out. And I think the United States was wrong in its opposition. Uh, that comes to the nearest neighbor, which is North Korea. So you yep. brought a North Korean delegation to Asia 21 event in Jakarta years yes. back. Have you traveled there? And yes. what has changed since Kim Jong-un's rise to power? Well, there's certainly, well, for one, I should say, nobody has complete or even good visibility into North Korea. And even though I spent nine days there last year, there's you know there's so much that we that we don't know. But from the outside, it definitely seems that uh, we're free. under Kim Jong Un, there's been a lot more purges and assassinations of senior officials. So there's a lot of instability still in the leadership. Um, the relations with China have deteriorated rapidly. Um, there have been uh, economic conditions have in some ways worsened because they had they were they had a, a beginnings of a, of a drought and now it appears that the things are starting to go better and they have some very preliminary economic reforms um, although it's going going to be difficult for uh, North Korea to have major economic reform because doing that would require a level of opening up that I think their leaders would would have a problem with uh, in such a closed uh, totalitarian society so it's North Korea is a very tragic country. For sure, think that the North Korean people would be far better off if there was Korean reunification under South Korea. And I definitely feel uh, that North Korean nuclear weapons are a threat to all countries. But the, the country that's threatened the most by North Korea's nuclear weapons, I believe, is China. And so I think that China, for its own national self-interest, should play a far more active role in seeking to roll back to stop and roll back North Korea's nuclear weapons program. I think there was this article you wrote in Syndicate that talks about mm. the Koreans' reunification that is actually in China's interest. I mean, I Correct. have a follow-up question to that is that yeah. you also mentioned that there is a split within the Chinese foreign policy community on North Korea. Correct. So yes. the first question would be, what's the basis of that argument and why is there a split? So the basis of my argument is just when you think about what happens if, yeah, well, they already have nuclear weapons, but when they miniaturize and are better able to deliver nuclear weapons, what changes? So for the United States, 
nothing really changes. Certainly, it, it justifies the U.S. pivot to Asia. It justifies Japan continuing on its path, moving towards military normalization. And it justifies the establishment of nuclear, of I'm sorry, uh, missile defense shields in Japan and Korea. And all of those things are probably not very good for China. China is against the U.S. rebalancing to Asia. It's against Japanese military normalization. It's against the creation of these missile shields because that undermines China's nuclear deterrent. But so whose behavior is changed the most from, by North Korean nuclear weapons? Uh, and that is China, because China's ability to influence North Korea, which it can influence now through its aid, they will have no influence. And to have a North Korea on China's border that's hostile and uncertain, and where the likelihood of an accident is actually quite high, and where if there were an accident, it would, it would certainly harm South Korea, but China, uh, Northeast China is right there, that would harm China the most. And so I, I just think that China is the big loser of a North Korean nuclear weapons program. And China is also, coincidentally, the country with the most influence over North Korea. And so for, I think China, for its own interest, should do far more to, to stop the North Korean nuclear weapons program. But if China is not willing to do that, uh, I don't think there's as, as that much that the rest of the world can do. Mm. And there is a split within themselves on this issue as well. Why is there a yes. split then? Um, because I think some people are sticking with the, the old-fashioned view that North Korea is a traditional ally. It's China's only ally. And then there are some people who, who have done the same analysis that I've done and say, wait a second, if these guys didn't have nuclear weapons and, and if they modernized or if there was Korean reunification, we could have a high-tech corridor uh, going from Seoul to Northeast China and think of all the benefits that that would engender. I see. So if do you think this North Korean government will collapse and what's the implication to South Korea's economy if such a situation yeah. happens? I think that it will collapse. Uh, I think most likely, who knows, but it uh, would be there would be some kind of coup. And but then once the Kim family was out of the picture, I think they would be hard to justify the existence of North Korea. So I think ultimately there could be some kind of transitional authority. I think China would probably invade at that point, and then maybe there'd be some kind of UN resolution that would make those Chinese troops part of a, uh, a UN peacekeeping operation, a transitional authority, and other troops would join also under blue helmets. Maybe there'd be a, an election, and then there would be reunification, and it would be certainly be very expensive, and South Korea would, would have to pay a lot of money, but U.S. would, would pay, and, and Japan would support it. I'm sure China would, would support it, so I could imagine creating something a lot better. So it would be expensive in the short term, but I think at the end of the day, uh, Korea will be, a reunified Korea will be far more competitive. It'll have the, the skills of South Korea, the natural resources, and low-cost labor of uh, North Korea, and it'll, it'll be connected by China, and so there'll be a lot of China-connected business that will also go to, go to Korea. So I think that it would be very, very positive for, uh, for Korea. I would want to get to Japan as well because Japan has an aging population and its reluctance mm. to solve the population issue. Where do you see yeah. the Japanese economy and society moving in the next decade then? Yeah, yeah. So Japan is shrinking and they're going to shrink. They certainly have uh, less global influence than they had in the past, but still they're the world's third largest uh, economy and they're made they're a very important country. I think sometimes sometimes people don't give Japan the credit it deserves. 
So I think Japan will still be there. It will still be uh, powerful and important, but it won't. I don't think it's going to be able to maintain its power and importance at this uh, at this level. But I, that doesn't mean that it will be gone. It'll just be relatively a bit weaker. So the whole because population shrink, right? So they basically with the Japanese economy will also shrink as a result. Of that. You know, people say that, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the case. I mean, certainly their consumption will go down, but uh, other types of productivity could go uh, up. I mean, certainly if they, if they can continue to have niche export markets, they can export, but uh, certainly the, the GDP will go down. But what do you do with GDP? You get quality of life for your people. And so if there's fewer people, Maybe they can have just as good of a quality of life with a smaller GDP. They may have a smaller military, but I, I think Japan's an important country, and lots of countries have demographic problems, certainly including Singapore and Korea and South Korea and uh, and China. I'm gonna go to something more lighthearted. Not really that lighthearted because I know you yeah. write novels too. <laughs> yeah, I've written two books actually. One is called The Depths of the Ocean, and the other one is Genesis Code. I read Genesis Code actually. Oh, I good. That's a lot on uh, biotech and genomic revolutions. Oh, by the way, I right. ordered it to Amazon. So you can oh, see. good. You want to tell us a little bit about how what inspired you to write those books and how sure. did your foreign experience, because I, I see a lot of foreign policy kind of topics that uh, fuse into these stories. Yeah, sure, so sure. sure. It's, yeah, first, yeah. It's, the de- the de- it's, close. it's the depths of the sea and Genesis Code. Yeah, correct. Um, yeah. Yeah, he said depths of the ocean, but it's close. Um, the uh, so for me, when I write novels, I, I kind of bring all of me to the novels, and so both the depths of the sea and Genesis Code are novels that came out of my experience of my kind of writing policy articles or books about things that I was really concerned about. In the first case, the responses to the Cambodia genocide. In the second, the national security and societal implications of the genetics revolution. But when I wrote those articles. I just felt that there were other ways that I wanted to reach people uh, and that, that it wasn't just writing kind of dry policy articles that I could get those ideas across, but to put to people learn through stories. And so to, to infuse some of those ideas into stories where there are relationships and love and sex and violence and all those things that we've come to expect in thrillers. And so that's what I've done. And it's been a nice way of kind of uh, not just entertaining people, but getting people to think uh, about issues that I also feel are important. Mm. And are you going to write any more books on that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So my the sequel to Genesis Code is called Eternal Sonata. Oh, you're right. And the sequel. Yeah, it's done. Uh, first draft is done. So that that and will be will be coming out next year. Okay. So I'm definitely yeah. waiting for the pre-order. Good. Then Good. Yeah, you're 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 responsible for the Singapore market. <laughs> well, definitely. And actually, I recommended it to a couple of the science fiction fans here. In oh, Singapore great. As Wonderful. Well. Yeah. Oh, so my last question, Jamie, help great. my audience. Oh, good. How do they good, find you? I'm getting you? tired. Yes. How do they find me? Well, that's a great question. So if they'd like to find me, the easiest way is on my website, which is www.jamiemetzel.com. And if you want to contact me, there's contact information there. And if you want to read any of the books, there's links and articles. They're all uh, there. And you can sign up for my email distribution list that you're also on, Bernard. Mm. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, and it's at Jamie Metzl, J-A-M-I-E-M-E-T-Z-L. And I think those are the good ways. But anybody, I'd be honored for people to to uh, read my book and let me know what you think. Is the reason I wrote it is for people to have conversations about 
the genetics revolution. I even I posted some questions for book clubs on on my blog. If people if book clubs want to read it, but you know, a lot of the things that I do are because I feel like there are big issues that we all, as as informed citizens, need to be learning about and exploring and discussing with each other. And I hope that in my little way, I can contribute to uh, those uh, conversations as you are. Uh, Bernard, through your podcast and your great work. Yep. And you can find me at bleungcw or at bernardleung.com or subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher and iTunes. Please leave a ratings. We want to hear your feedback. And of course, Jamie, once again, I'm, I look forward to see you on the 10th anniversary, most likely. Wonderful. And yep. Take care then. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you.